I'm Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to showcase some of the best and most interesting people in strategic studies. And today I have the great good fortune of recording this in Manama with two of the sparkliest and most serious people in this field, Dr. Tamara Wittes. Uh, who is at the Brookings Institution, former director of the Saban Center, former director of the MEPI program in the Department of State, and Maggie Feldman-Pilch, the founder of the National Security Girls Squad, which is a movement to diversify and advance alternative perspectives in this serious business. Thank you both, my friends, for this conversation. So glad to be here. Makes me joyful. I want to start with you, Dr. Kaufman-Wittes. Give us a sense of what this moment is like in the Middle East. You see protests in Lebanon, protests in Iran, simmering fissures, governments growing more authoritarian in response to them, or... Uh, as in Iraq, elites closing ranks. Uh, how is there anything generalizable about the unrest we're seeing? Wow. So it's unrest, but it's unrest that um, reflects and manifests really long simmering trends in the region, trends that governments have struggled and failed to confront effectively over a long period of time. Um, I think the the first major study of this was the Arab Human Development Report that came out back in 2004, Mm. talking about this rising generation of reasonably healthy and well-educated and connected Arab youth who had expectations uh, that their governments and economies could not meet. Uh, And uh, despite a lot of talk about reforms that would be necessary to accommodate this rising generation, there simply hasn't been enough progress in the region as yet. Um, What there has been, especially in the last decade, is a lot of political turmoil as a result of those unmet expectations um, and as a result of the willingness of some governments to use force to counter uh, the kind of uh, expressions of grievance and dissent that we've seen. One of the conclusions we came to in the Iran dossier that we at the IISS have just released is that the quality and inclusiveness of governance is the most important factor in limiting Iranian malign influence in the neighboring regions. How much does this issue of governance matter? It seems to be a major influence in unrest in Iraq and also in Lebanon. But is that about uh, opportunity or is it about quality of governance or can they not be disentangled in these countries? Um, I, I think they can't be disentangled and not everything goes back to governance. But, you know, governments do set the conditions within which uh, states fit into the global economy. They set the conditions within which Uh, entrepreneurs try to create new businesses and employment. And so governments matter hugely. And especially in a region where economies are traditionally so dominated by the state and in the oil producing 
states in particular, um, there's very little private economy outside of the government-run energy sector. And so that's a structural challenge that governments have to take on. Um, and I think different ones have, have tried to take it on in different ways. What I would say about the Iranian role is that from the beginnings of the Islamic Republic, they have proven themselves expert at exploiting the cracks within societies elsewhere in the region. Um, finding those uh, grievances and cleavages and driving wedges um, into them. And so, you know, you hear a lot of conversation today about the Iranian role in subverting politics inside Arab countries. And I think that it's, um, it's quite correct of IISS to point out the importance of social cohesion in insulating and protecting a healthy society mm -hmm. from that kind of external interference and also from other um, forms of conflict and uh, extremism that we see in this region, like uh, Sunni Islamist extremism, yeah. which also exploits grievances and cleavages within society. I did a, a report for an Atlantic Council task force a couple of years ago that made a similar point that um, the last decade of social um, grievance in the Arab world has just vastly expanded the opportunities for Iran, and Iran is very good at exploiting those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Maggie, I saw in your Twitter feed, uh, which uh, That's is... That's where Maggie lives. <laughs> it's not real life, just so everyone remembers. <laughs> I thought... Um, your comments on the geopolitics you saw coming to Manama, um, somebody who's not a Middle East expert right. and has fresh eyes on the region. Talk us through the, those impressions, because I thought they were really um, very insightful. So, yes, this is my first time here. I'm not a Middle East expert by any means. Um, and so I got to my hotel and I turned on the TV and found more than 24 channels either uh, in Russian language or variations of RT, uh, Russia Today, and uh, CCTV and CGTV News, which is China Global Television News. Um, and it was surprising and, as an American, upsetting, um, but not as surprising as it should be, right? Um, and particularly interesting was that on CGTV, they aired almost a 90-minute uh, interview with AMLO, the, the relatively new president of Mexico, um, and we're really looking at the challenges he faces on the domestic side. Um, and I don't know that I've ever seen a U.S. news channel <laughs> do a 90-minute interview with anyone from Mexico or the Mexican government, and certainly not AMLO, and certainly not talking about uh, transportation plans and how it may impact uh, Mayan land, right? I, so from my perspective, what I really saw was a lack of the U.S. and even European presence, right? Um, and in the last year or so, the more I've traveled, it, the contrast has become more stark. Um, and the lack of, of presence and voice um, from the U.S. is not just on policy, right? It's on information, too. And if you're an everyday average person, 
um, maybe you're not on Twitter as much, but you're certainly turning on your TV. Um, and it, so it was shocking, but not as shocking as it should be. Yeah, the I think in particular in the Middle East, the United States is over-invested in the use of hard power um, and high politics and dramatically under-investing in the kind of social capital that that people yearn for, yeah. whether or not governments think they're good influences. Um, and it's a much less expensive form of American power, a much more accessible and inclusive form of American power. Uh, Dr. Wittes, talk about some of those methods. You worked on these things. Yeah, you know, I, I think about this too not just in the context of rising powers who are expanding their um, soft power engagement and their diplomacy and their hard power engagement, by the way, around the world. And this, this part of the world here in the Gulf where there are opportunities for investment, um, there are opportunities, really a huge need for infrastructure development. You know, there's a lot of reason for economies of rising powers to make themselves known here and be present present here. Um, but I think part of the imbalance that Maggie observed is due to uh, what happened at the end of the Cold War, which is that the United States had these very sophisticated, well-resourced soft power tools that it used through the course of the Cold War co conflict. And then in the search for a peace dividend, um, dismantled or downsized them extensively. You know, so my father had a 30-year career in the U.S. Information Agency, uh, yeah. which no longer exists, right? Mm -hmm. And we have had, since the end of the Cold War, tremendous pressure on our foreign assistance budget, which is 1% of our federal budget, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, to a certain extent, there was an assumption on the part of American strategists and policymakers that because we'd won, because our economy was the biggest and most dynamic in the world, we didn't have to make those government investments anymore. The legacy would carry us through. And I think what we're realizing now in this era of renewed geopolitical competition is that we, we can't you know, give up on government investments in those kinds of tools. The government has to drive and encourage and maintain that presence um, and that's not just for the sake of competition. It's also because all relationships require nurturing. None of yeah. them are self-sustaining. Yeah. So one of the uh, complaints that governments in the Middle East very often voice about American foreign policy is that we uh, think our values are Western and American values are universal and that they don't want the kind of influences that we think of as progressive. Both of you are such powerful clarion voices for greater inclusiveness, for diversity of various kinds. What, what advice do you have to offer about navigating um, relationships where there is resistance to the kinds of values that that uh, encouraging and acknowledging and celebrating diversity uh, br 
ring. It doesn't have to be specific to the Middle East. But this is an area where both of you are powerful voices. So, so how do you think about that problem in circumstances where, uh, where the soil might not be as fertile? So I would say be like water on pavement, right? Get in all the cracks and crevices. And there's certainly a difference between what something looks like and what something actually is. And I think... Um, in the States, at least, there's a huge emphasis on numbers, right, and kind of aesthetic diversity, you might say. And that's important, um, and equity of who participates in things like that certainly matter. Um, but the context matters as well, and you have to take into consideration kind of where you're starting um, and when you plot out where you want to go. I mean, that's with anything, uh, diversity or, or, or any other endeavor. Um but, you know, there's my, my gut reaction to this is, oh, they'll have to get over it, right? <laughs> like, we'll just outlast them. Um, but I, I say that with an, a drop of honey, and by that I mean it, you can get a, a pretty long way by being nice um, and letting people come to conclusions on their own with your uh, strategic guidance. Um, and I find that to be effective. Um, and particularly when it comes to NAPSEC Girl Squad, what we really talk about is competent diversity, right? I, I talk to you both about this all the time. It's not diversity or, or inclusion for the sake of those two things. It's because this is what will secure the United States and our friends and allies, right, and, and ensure that we are stable, prosperous, all of these things. So there's a reason for it. Um, and really focusing on that particular aspect um, helps people take a deep breath. Tammy, what is that? How? What has your experience trying to advance these issues in this region been like? You know, honestly, I, I, it has not been my experience that it's a question of importing values from outside. It's um, very much my experience that there are a lot of people within societies across the Middle East who are pushing for change from within because, because a globally connected world with a, and countries that are facing complex challenges need all the talent that they can get, mm -hmm. right? Um, the trend in the Arab world for a long time has been that young women test into university at higher levels. And if you look at the, at the major regional universities in the Arab world, women students outnumber male yeah, students yeah. and outperform them in a lot of places. And so if you're not using that talent, then you are missing out on the best talent in your society. The statistics show that. So I don't think it's a question of you know having to make the case from outside. Um, I think all the pressures are there, and it's a question of taking advantage of the resource pools and opportunities that are there. I've seen, and it's very encouraging to me, um, to see in the last few years Gulf governments recruit many more young people and many more young women yes. into their diplomatic corps. If you go to even the Saudi embassy in Washington today, yes. um, which has a female ambassador, but 
more important, I think, is that when you walk down the hallway, most of the people there are 30 or under, and a lot of them are women. Um, and so giving those people opportunities, giving them the training and the skills they need to succeed, and then, as Maggie said, listening to the creative ideas that they have about how to do things differently, that to me is a competitive advantage that any government would be foolish to give up. Uh, that's such a magnificent and constructive way to think about it. What I noticed working for the 151 dedicated people of the IISS is that diversity is a problem-solving requirement. Yes. Right? That it gives us all different perspectives. It helps us see problems from different angles. It spurs each other's creativity to, to think of what the problem looks like from someone else. And so I love the way you um, embrace that this is an advantage for societies, um, not, not a sufferance issue, not something being forced on them from outside. And also your emphasis that governments in the region understand that and are embracing it in constructive ways. Um, I'm delighted to hear that. Let me ask you uh, another question back to the politics of the region. I mean, Maggie's very good point about lots of Russian and lots of Chinese on TV. Um, uh, Russia's intervention in Syria kept Assad in power. Iran's intervention in Syria helped keep Assad in power. Is there, do you think, the potential for nationalist backlash or negative repercussions from, you know, many national security commentators are saying the Russians are geniuses. Uh, and that may well be true, but what we noticed in the Iran dossier is that uh, Iranians are now, the, the Quds Force and the Iranian government are associated with corruption and repression because that's what they have uh, endorsed in Syria. And you can see it creating greater backlash to Iranian influence in Iraq and other places. Is that a pattern you see more generally? Is this a risk that the Russians and the Chinese run in the region? Uh, how should American policy look at those potential influences? I, I actually think it's an equal opportunity risk for outside powers engaged in this region. One of the clear consequences of the uprisings that began in 2011 and that we have seen renewed in places like Iraq and Lebanon and Algeria and Sudan this year um, one of the consequences is a rising sense of nationalism and national identity. And, you know, for all of the, um, I think, uh, loose talk that we sometimes hear in Western capitals about the artificiality of Arab state boundaries that were mm. drawn a century ago by French and British um, elites on a map, these are, at this point real national communities with real national identities and real national pride. And they are differentiating themselves from one another as well as from the rest of the world. Um, and so all kinds of external interventions, even things that are benign or beneficial, 
can sometimes provoke a nationalist backlash. I think that's something that all external actors in the region should be mindful of, and it's why it is so important to engage in a way that is responsive to concerns that come not only from regional governments, but from regional societies. Um, what we see in the protests in Iraq and Lebanon is that, yes, Iran is very closely associated with the corruption of political elites in these countries and with the um, external engagement in national politics that created the spoils systems of the Iraqi government and the Lebanese government. Um, and of course, both of those spoils systems were um, set up as ways that political elites could extract themselves from civil war, civil yeah. war in which the Iranians were also involved. Um, and so I don't think Iran can escape that tightly woven relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that what we see in Iranian policy, particularly in the Iraq protests, is that for them, they, their influence uh, over the Iraqi government is understood by them as such an existential issue that they, are, they don't mind if uh, the people in the street are angry at them. They cannot abide uh, a government in Iraq that does not take account of their interests and they are willing to not just endorse but encourage uh, mm -hmm. and sponsor violence to put down these protests. They've made that very clear. One of the things I notice watching the uh, protests in Iraq is that uh, Iran, the Quds Force and Qasim Soleimani in particular, up until a few years ago, up until about 2015 they uh, were they this was a sovereign asset for the government of Iran because it had deniability right that they they wanted to be seen by the United States by Israel by other powers as dictating the terms in Iraq but they didn't want to look that way to Iraqis and what I noticed is a few years ago, Iranians started to want to be seen doing it, right? Soleimani posing for pictures all over the place. Um, a lot more visibility to their actions. And with visibility comes accountability. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> and it looks to me like that the natural limitation of this tool that for Iran... It's their tool of choice. It has made the investments in weapon systems by countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE much less relevant than those governments or the United States believed that would be. I want to close out the geopolitics part of our conversation by, by asking you both to reflect on what do you think uh, – the West in general, but the United States in particular, if there were one or two things you could change about our policy in the region, what, what would you change? One or two things you could change about current Trump administration current policy Trump administration in policy in the region, yes. Um, well, I think the biggest thing I would like to see is clarity and consistency. 
Mm-hmm. I think, and I think that that's what I hear from just about all of my regional interlocutors. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what their views may be on specific issues, it's the changeability, the capriciousness of American policy over the last couple of years is the thing that troubles them the most and makes them feel the most uncertain about the reliability of their partnership with Washington. Um, Now, I think the degree of turmoil in this region uh, has also led to questions in Washington about where the Middle East fits in and where American partnerships in the Middle East fit into American strategy globally. Um, And so that questioning on both sides can only be resolved through honest conversation, conversation that both sides invest in to clarify what the shared interests are and what each side of the partnership is willing to put into furthering that interest. Um, And so, you know, I think this is a moment when we really do need to go back to the fundamentals and commit ourselves to frank conversation to come to clear understandings. Mm. Hmm. I mean, I would agree with that, unsurprisingly, right? And and add that it would be quite useful if the people in charge of that clarity um, knew what they were doing and maybe had some expertise in the area. Um, <laughs> what, what are you suggesting, I'm Maggie? not sure. You know, I, I am deeply obsessed with who's in the room. Um, and there are some fabulous minds and incredibly competent people who could do good work here, and I would love to see those people have the opportunity to do good work here. Since you used the word opportunity, (laughs) I want to talk about NATSEC Girl Squad. Sure. I want you to give us a sense of what motivated you to start the organization, what your ambition is for the organization. So it's almost ironic to have this conversation with the two of you because you're pretty much why, right, I started NATSEC Girl Squad. I was like, well, they're cool. Um, I want to do that. And, you know, I, you, I, I, I moved to Washington with a very clear plan to become Leo McGarry from the West Wing. And it's actually much harder than you would expect um, to show up with no plan and become the chief of staff at the White House. Um, and I... I know what I'm good at and I also know what I'm not good at. So I'm good at um, connecting people and figuring out what I need and also, again, knowing what I'm not good at um, and knowing where I need help and how to ask for help. Um, And so I was looking for some mentorship, like a formal program to help me figure out my life and reached out to a few um, nonprofit organizations that focus on women and foreign policy and defense Um, And nobody had a mentorship program, but about 300 other women said, hey, if you find one, can you let me know? (laughs) Because I'm also looking. Um, And so a listserv was born. Um, And that was a few years ago now, and it's much larger today. Um, And we're really focused on building competent diversity in national security and defense. So for us, that means not telling anybody what success looks like, what it means to be a woman or an ally in this field, but saying we want to empower and ensure that you are able to define success for yourself and help you get there and also recognize that that definition is going to change over time and we want to help you let it change and keep being successful throughout your life. Um, So 
I, you know, we are, we are a B Corp, which for those not familiar means that we are a social impact for-profit entity. Um, and we have a nonprofit that right now doesn't do anything because there's only one of me. Um, but we are really focused on, on building expertise, building confidence in that expertise. And then the part I love the most, frankly, aside from hanging out with all of the members, is how do we have sustainable, repeatable institutional change? So working with mission-driven businesses and organizations and governments um, to say, here's what works and here's what doesn't. And even if we don't know the answer, let's just keep trying. Tamara, I love the work you did at Brookings for helping all of the rest of us understand how to get diverse applicant pools because very often the excuse for lack of diversity in selection, particularly in high-level jobs, is that, you know, there, there were no qualified applicants. Talk to our listeners about some of the ways you've identified that all of our institutions can improve. Absolutely. But first, I want to say two things that I love about NATSEC Girl Squad and why I think it is such an important addition to the field. Um, the first is that it is such a vibrant, talented, knowledgeable group of women who are coming into the field. They're at the entry phase of their careers. And so for all of the people who have said to me for 20 years, well, there's a pipeline problem. I don't know where all these women are. Natsa Girl Squad is saying, here we are. (laughs) Um, And so it just, you know, knocks that one off the list right away on the list of excuses. Uh, And I thank you for that, for mobilizing this tremendous group of women. Um, But secondly, I think that, you know, coming from the perspective of somebody who has been in the field for a while and tries in the ways that I can to help bring more women into the field, I think a lot of the existing organizations were people like me kind of looking down the pipeline and saying, "How how do we pull people up? And what I love about NatSec Girl Squad is that rather than us trying to think about what you need, you guys are defining it for us and for businesses that know that they that this is a strategic opportunity, for government agencies that, that know that they benefit in problem-solving terms from diversity. You are giving them the tools to take advantage, and, and that's just a, a beautiful um, thing to do at this moment. So... You know, it makes it easier for us when we want to recruit. And I think that the think tank world um, has learned a lot from the private sector and all of the work that's been done on diversity in the private sector. Both the business case for diversity, which we have now written a version of that for the Brookings Institution, which you can find on our website. Why is it important for think tanks who solve complex policy problems to have diverse and inclusive workforces? Because it helps solve complex policy problems right. better than you get a, better answers. You know, a homogenous workforce, and there's evidence for that. Um, it matters how you write a job description. You know, how do you define leadership? How do you define a rock star intellectual leader? And are you doing that in gendered terms? Um, how is it that you recruit? Do you just think of the, the people that are already in your network and send your job announcement out to them? Or do you stretch and think about 
how do I bring in new audiences that I don't even know yet? You know, these are some of the things that we talk about and work on a lot at Brookings, and I know that other institutions are doing that as well, and I hope that, you know, these are the things that become standard practice. We'll all benefit. So one of the things I notice about uh, conversations about building diversity is that very often they are segregated from other conversations, from substantive conversations, um, uh, conversations about geopolitics. And I want to thank you both, Maggie Feldman-Pilch and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, for modeling a conversation that is integral about the important high politics, national security issues, and also the diversity issues that help us understand those geopolitics in broader, more interesting terms. I admire you both so much. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Corey. It's a treat to be with you.